Well, good morning, folks. Good morning. It's lovely to be with you again. Praise the Lord. Yes, welcome. Amen. Well, yesterday, uh, I, I, I did not get around to giving you the last point. That's last night's message. Remember, that was about the word propitiation. That big, long, difficult word. Now, very quickly, when it says that, um, that God has put forward as a propitiation or God put him forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. So it is an important word and it uh, actually means to turn aside the wrath of God from us in, that, in the sense that God is angry with sin. He's angry all day long with sin and with sinners. And uh, we live in an age when it's very popular to be enraged if you've noticed. People are always getting enraged about something and uh, they're always all getting offended about something and uh, it may be different from today to tomorrow but a lot of people are offended. But we, we rarely stop to consider that God may be offended with this cosmic event of sin that has happened in his world, in his creation. So God is rightly and justly offended and enraged against sin and what has happened. So uh, this is a word that, that covers the turning aside of this anger. It is not simply enough to be justified uh, or to be glorified or, and, uh, and such words, but also propitiation must take place. God must be propitiated and righteously so. And if you, uh, if you go back to the Old Testament, to the Day of Atonement, you remember there were two goats taken. Uh, one was the Lord's goat and one was the scapegoat. And uh, the scapegoat had the sins of Israel confessed over its head that it was taken out into the wilderness and let go, picturing our sin being taken away. But the Lord's goat, as a zeal it was called, was taken, it was slain, the blood was shed, it was sprinkled before the, uh, the mercy seat inside the holy place or the holy of holies and uh, also in front of the, uh, the, the altar and the tabernacle itself. Uh, of course this day, the most solemn day in, uh, in Israel's calendar was the day when the sin of the nation as such was dealt with. A holy day, a day of fasting and a day of affliction. The Lord's goat was slain and the blood was sprinkled seven times before the, the, uh, the, the Ark of the Covenant and upon the mercy seat. Now, uh, the mercy seat in the, uh, the Greek version of the Old Testament was called halasterion, which is the same word in Greek for mercy seat. So when you come to Hebrews, that's the word you find. The mercy seat, halasterion, same word. So here, this, uh, this wooden lid covered with gold the, uh, the, the, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant, uh, that is where the blood was taken and was, it was placed upon, sprinkled upon this cover. And uh, God said that this was the place that I would meet with you. This was the place that I would fellowship with you from above the mercy seat, from between the cherubim of glory. And the prescription was once a year, this was where the blood had to be sprinkled upon this mercy seat to propitiate, to turn aside the righteous anger of God against sin. When he saw the blood, 
then he could fellowship with man. Then, via the high priest, he could fellowship with us. So, the blood of Christ becomes the propitiation for our sin, the turning aside of wrath. Of course, this is not uh, a particularly beloved doctrine uh, in, in modern uh, Christianity because it highlights the sinfulness of sin. And uh, the, the modern notion is that uh, really we're not that bad. We're not that sinful. And, and certainly we don't deserve anger because God is love. That's what it says. Surely God is love. But God is also wrath. God is also righteously angry with, right. with sinners. Well, let's go on now to, uh, to what we're looking at today, which is man's predicament, man's terrible predicament. And uh, we are looking now in Romans 1. We're just going to look at verses 18 to 32. And um, many discussions of, uh, of salvation are often reduced to the somewhat superficial when we come to consider sin. Remember last night I said we must have the diagnosis before we have the prescription. You don't go into the doctor's surgery and as you walk in he writes out a script and then asks you, now what's the, what's the problem? <laughs> no, he, he's, he's supposed to find out what the problem is and then prescribe what you may need. But modern churches often do not. They say, here's the prescription. Well, what's your problem? My problem is sin and uh, my problem is guilt. That has to be dealt with. So we need to, uh, to present the reason for this guilt. So we are now going to consider the seriousness of the predicament of man, the diagnosis of his condition. And we must realise the depths of our utter lostness without God in this world because of sin. Jeremiah put it this way, they have healed the wound of my people lightly, saying, peace, peace, when there is no peace. Other translations say, um, superficially. They have healed the wound of my people superficially. They have like put a, a band-aid on it and said it's really nothing. It's just a scratch. But it is not. And it requires much more than a superficial healing. So the diagnosis comes because the wrath of God, now this is um, verse 18, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them, because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world, in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. The present state of man. Paul's intention is to lock the entire human race up unto sin as in a prison house and he needs to realize that he, he is in this prison house before he's interested in any way out if he can buy some other cheap grace if you like he'll take that without realizing his really bad state the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that the promise by faith of Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So we have an imprisoned world leaving faith 
as the only way out. There is no other way. He is in a prison. In, uh, prior to World War II, or sorry, World War I, there was a tremendous optimism, certainly in the West, certainly in Western Europe, England, America. Uh, things were going great. Everything was on the up and up, if you like. Uh, the, uh, the Western world had embraced the theory of evolution, not only biological evolution, but sociological evolution. Things were getting better. You only had to look around. The churches were flourishing and um, uh, there was money, there was wealth, things were fine and uh, there was this sense that really we have just about made the grade. Mankind has just about reached his zenith. Uh, culture was very high. Beautiful buildings being constructed uh, at that particular time. Then came the prospect of World War I and uh, most thought this was going to be like a walk in the park. You know, I used to read about men in England and they say, this is going to be great. We're going to go over there, we'll be back before morning tea and it'll all be over. But of course it wasn't. And, uh, and so this, this notion, this optimism, they say died in the Somme and the trenches of World War I because it went on and it went on and it went on and the, the lives lost were tremendous. An entire generation of young men, it's hard to imagine, but an entire generation virtually disappeared in World War I. And so the optimism evaporated. It was not so good as we thought it was going to be. Then there, uh, in between the wars, 1930, well this began in 1938, uh, a man by the name of uh, Frank Buckman uh, started a movement called Moral Rearmament. Now some of you may have heard of this, Moral Rearmament, it's changed its name to something else, but this was a, uh, a notion that we could improve the morality of, of people, of men. And uh, they had this slogan, four absolutes, absolute honesty, absolute purity, absolute un unselfishness, absolute love. But it was all Christless. There was no Christ in this. Even though most of these people were church people that, uh, that involved themselves. And uh, this Frank Buckman had tremendous audiences, both in Britain and then in America. Lots of people came and they said, this is great. Yes, we're going to improve mankind. And inside ten years, we had World War II. So again, the optimism evaporated. It was gone. Of course, we have uh, this inane slogan of love now that uh, this is going to fix everything, which it is not. So man now stands as a sinner under the revelation of the wrath of God. This, of course, is the history of Israel. Israel, uh, blessed by God, and then they fall into sin. They go back to idolatry, and then judgment falls. They cry out to God, and God delivers them once again. They never seem to learn. Why? Because the nature of man is sinful. It naturally goes that way. It doesn't matter what the circumstances, it will go the, the, the way of decline. Say it again. <laughs> so man stands now under the wrath of God. This is the emotional disposition of God toward man. For the wrath of God is revealed against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who hold down or suppress the truth. 
So that suggests to us that man knows something. And he's been suppressing it. He's been holding it down. And this is the nub of the situation, because this is what has happened. Man also knows about judgment. God judged in the flood. It says there that uh, I have, this is God speaking, I have determined to make an end of all flesh. I will destroy them with the earth. That actually happened. An entire civilization, an entire world was destroyed along with the earth, except for Noah and his family. Then again, in uh, the case of Sodom and Gomorrah, God said, I'm going to uh, rain down sulfur or fire and brimstone out of heaven because of the sinfulness of these cities. And that's what he did. I, I saw a documentary recently about um, the search for Sodom and Gomorrah. Uh, some have said it's, it's, they think it's somewhere on the land on the southern end of the Dead Sea, or it's under the Dead Sea. And this uh, research, t uh, the research team had discovered uh, some unusual shapes under the Dead Sea. Large, not regular like the, 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 the flat bottom of the sea. And they figured, well, maybe this, these are the remains of Sodom and Gomorrah. They're encrusted with, uh, with, uh, with salt because it is, of course, very, very salty. It was a bit of a risky uh, venture because uh, the Dead Sea uh, is so mineralized and so salty that if you were to be hit by a wave and you're out in, the, in that Dead Sea, it would be three times the power of, of a wave out here because it's so solid, so dense. And uh, they sent this little submarine down and they could, uh, they could see these shapes. But whatever the case is, Sodom and Gomorrah are gone, absolutely destroyed. And if you look at that bottom end of the Dead Sea, it's dead. Everything about it is dead. And yet this was the place that Lot looked upon and said, this is like the Garden of the Lord. This is like Egypt, which was, at that time, was flourishing, green, fruitful. This was what Sodom and Gomorrah was like. This was what the cities of the plain were like. But now, not anymore, because God judged them. So God, uh, God's disposition is against man because of his godliness, uh, sorry, ungodliness and wickedness, or godlessness and wickedness. Godlessness refers to his attitude to God. Wickedness refers to his conduct or his behavior. So his attitude is bad and his behavior is bad also. Such people hold down the truth of God. However, as someone once said and well said, there are some things that we cannot not know. That's a double negative. There are some things that we cannot not know. There are some truths that we cannot suppress. Suppress all you like, but they're still there. This being the case, we have to reject those sanctimonious claims of seekers after truth. Well, brother, I'm a seeker after truth. You're telling me about Jesus? Well, I'm a seeker. Maybe I will find one day. You are not a seeker after truth. You're a suppressor of truth. Because you do know certain things. Because there are some things that you cannot not know. You are pretending you don't know them and you are saying, look, I'm just seeking things. But you're not. You're suppressing things. We have uh, this term called agnostic. 
which was not always in the vocabulary, but it, uh, it was coined by um, T.H. Huxley. Now, you remember Huxley was the... He was called the bulldog of Darwin, uh, Darwin's bulldog. Uh, he, he fought for Darwin. He fought for his theory of evolution. And uh, he called himself an agnostic. Why? Because it was unfashionable to call yourself an atheist back in the Victorian era. You just, uh, if you want to get on in life, you don't call yourself an atheist. So he called himself an agnostic, which of course means A, not gnosis knowledge. I don't know. I have no knowledge. Now Bob Hawke famously regarded himself as an agnostic. But he is a man who did know. He, he did live in Christian circles. He was a churchgoer. He was involved in church camps and like this. He, he knew more than most, which makes his action the more reprehensible because he's rejected more light. But yes, he said, look, I'm an agnostic. I don't really know. And many people, you know, uh, take this position and sort of feel somewhat morally superior because I say I'm an agnostic. In other words, I'm open to truth if it ever finds its way to me. But, uh, but no, I'm actually rejecting it. So you say, I don't truly know, but you do truly know. Now Peter, uh, writing in his second letter, uh, uh, referring to certain scoffers, said this, Above all, you must understand that in the last days, scoffers will come, scoffing and following their own evil desires. They will say, Where is this pr uh, promise of his coming? Ever since... Our fathers or our ancestors died. Everything goes on as it has since the beginning of creation. But they deliberately forget that long ago, God's, by God's word, the heavens being, um, came into being and the earth was formed out of water and by water. And by these waters also the world of that time was deluged and destroyed. By the same word, the present heavens and earth are reserved for fire being kept for the day of judgment and destruction of the ungodly. How do we know that God will one day judge the earth by fire? Because one day in the past he judged the earth by water. And it is my proof. As I look around the world I see the evidence of destruction by water. And that says to me, if God says there's going to be destruction by fire, that will happen. Well, notice these people say uh, they deliberately forget. Various translations put it this way. They maintain it escapes their notice. Or, they deliberately overlook. Or, they purposely ignore. Or, they willingly are ignorant of. How do they know what they now want to willfully forget? Now, we're saying they know something. That they knew something from the beginning, which they're trying to forget. Well, how do we know that people know something? Well, first of all, all men have a revelation of God in nature. That's what we read in verses 19 and 20. I think that's this one. Oh, that's the next one. Sorry. So, we read there that man knows the invisible attributes of God. Man knows his eternal power, his divine nature. And he knows these things by the things that are made. Now, of course, we live in a, in a, uh, in a society 
that often doesn't look at the things that are made. Um, we rarely see the stars because there's too many lights on in a city, but they are there. Once uh, we, our family went up into North Queensland where my father worked, he was a motor mechanic on cattle stations. So he spent his life in the Gulf country. And we went up to this particular station one day and um, uh, it was rodeo time at Mariba. Mariba has a, an annual uh, rodeo and uh, everyone disappears from the cattle stations to go to, to the rodeo. And, uh, but my father d doesn't go and uh, he went out to one of the outstations to look after it for a few days until they all came back. And so we went with him to this outstation. And uh, at night time uh, we walked out into the, uh, into the evening and uh, there was no moon. We looked up and we saw stars like we had never seen before. It was pitch black and uh, the heavens was just completely covered in millions of stars. I thought, wow, what a brilliant sight. Secondly, we realized we were somewhere between 80 and 100 kilometers from the nearest human being. I thought, this is strange. This is almost scary. Here we are way out here, so far from any, even a human being. But man, of course, traditionally and historically, he saw the stars. One of the first things he noticed, the stars that testify that there's something greater here, even God, even to the comprehension that he is eternal and that he is powerful and that he is deity. This is what the message is from the heavens that we live under and the creation that is around about us. The heavens declare the glory of God, says Psalm 19. The sky above proclaims his handiwork. Day to day pours out speech. Night to night reveals knowledge. There is no speech. There are no words whose voice is not heard. We call that general revelation and everybody has it. We talk about another kind of revelation being special revelation which is the gospel, which is the scripture. But every man has this general revelation, this general testimony to the reality of God. He may deny it, but in his heart of hearts he knows it because he is obviously continually suppressing it as much as he can. Then, secondly, this is not an obscure revelation. He has made it plain to them. Look at this. For what can be known about God is plain to them. God has shown it to them. It has been clearly perceived. So we really need to give the weight that these words are due. There is tremendous clarity about us in the testimony of the heavens and of the creation about us. Clarity, easily perceived. God has shown it to them. Kepler, the, um, the German astronomer, said this, the undevout astronomer is mad. How can an astronomer look at the heavens and say there is no God, that I am not devout, I will not worship him and remain sane? That's what he's saying. So Paul concludes in verse 20, so they are without excuse. They are without excuse. 
If we, if we went to chapter 2, we have the principles of God's judgments. Uh, that's chapter 2 of Romans. It is the basis upon which God judges. Chapter 2 is not about the way of salvation. It is about the principles upon which God will judge men. And one of those principles is, it is according to behaviour, it is not according to knowledge. It is according to what you do, it is not according to what you know. Because the Jew took great pride in what he knew. The Pharisee took great pride in what he knew. I know certain things. But God says, I'm not interested in that. I'm interested in what you do. And upon that I will judge you. When the Gentiles, who do not have the law, do by nature what the law requires, they are a law unto themselves. Even though they do not have the law, as in Moses' law, they show the work of the law written upon their hearts, their conscience also bears witness and their conflicting thoughts accuse or else excuse one another. Like I said last night, you know, man naturally will either uh, accuse someone else to make him look better or excuse themselves for some reason. And this is what conscience does, this co-knowledge that we have with, our, with our, ourselves. And natural man, the conscience is always working, always in process. Accusing or else excusing. Realising their, their actually actual moral nakedness before God. That's why man does it. The work of the law, it says, not the law. So, the, the Gentile, who never had the Ten Commandments or the law, nevertheless has this so-called work, ergon, of the law in his heart. In other words, what the law requires, this man realises, is, is required by me. He knows, he may not know the law says, you shall not murder. But he knows, I should not murder. John G. Patton was a missionary, Scottish missionary, to um, the New Hebrides, now Vanuatu. And he tells in his biography of being out in the, in the bush and he saw a warrior from a particular tribe uh, come through the bush and murder another young man from another tribe. And as he watched him from where he was, he saw this murderer become ashen white and afraid, as he described it. Absolutely struck with fear. He had just killed this man. Now, the law of his tribe said, for him to become a warrior, he had to kill someone from another tribe. But conscience said, that's wrong. And he became fearful and afraid because of what he had done. There was a law working in his conscience and in his heart. Yes, and every man has this. Literally, na uh, by nature, they have a consciousness of right and wrong and a sense that they approve what the law requires. So becoming a law unto themselves. God-given moral awareness is witnessed by man's own conscience. So man is not a moral vacuum. Not at all. The history of sin and God's judicial responses from verse 21. Hang on, did I miss the one? No, I've got to go back here. Um, man knew God at the beginning, but how long ago was the beginning? So that's our first question. How long ago was the beginning? So we're going to go to that one. 
Man knew God from the beginning. Man knew much more than what he knows now because he has intentionally forgotten, willfully forgotten, and put aside certain things. Now what we have here is, uh, I, I've just put together um, a, a chart to illustrate the, the, uh, the fact that between creation and Noah's flood was no more than three generations. So we have, first of all, Adam who lived 930 years, which is a fair long time, probably longer than most of us will live. And, uh, but between Adam and Lamech, you have about eight generations, which, which I haven't put in that chart, but there are eight generations. They're like steps, like this. And they all live in excess of 900 years, except for Enoch, 345 or something, and then he left. He went away. And uh, so we have um, Lamech, who lived 777 years. So we see that Adam and Lamech were contemporary for, what is it, 57 years. 56 years. For 56 years, they were contemporary. So Lamech would have known pretty much everything that Adam knew. Because Adam was there. Adam knew what took place, creation, and all that took place, the fall, and so on. So Lamech lived for his 777 years, but he had a son, Noah. And uh, Noah and Lamech were contemporary for 595 years. So what did Noah not know? <laughs> Having spent that amount of time with a man who was only one generation from the beginning. <coughs> then we go through the flood and, uh, and we find Abraham was born two years after Noah died. So that's... Um, uh, the knowledge would have been incredible that these people had and so close, so close to the actual uh, historical beginnings of everything. They knew. The knowledge of God was carried through the flood and then this knowledge spread out of course through Ham, uh, Shem, Ham and Japheth and their offspring uh, finally covering the whole earth. And what we do find uh, is this, that the knowledge, if you took the knowledge from up to the flood Pretty much every culture has remnants of that knowledge still remaining. Right up until the flood. After the flood, you see it drop off as far as biblical history is concerned. Well, uh, of course, Abraham was born uh, around 1996 BC. 2,000 years, roughly 2,000. So we go from 2,000 years... Here's a brother, come right in. <laughs> We go roughly 2,000 years from creation to, to Abraham, then roughly 2,000 years from Abraham to Christ, and roughly 2,000 to us. So here we are. Um, it was uh, Harry Ironside said this, The great pagan nations once knew more than they do now. The knowledge of God brought through the flood was disseminated throughout the ancient world, back of all great idolatrous systems is pure monotheism. Now, if you were to go and study comparative religions at a university, they would start off and say, well, you know, when, when man, first of all, kind of, you know, reached the level of humanhood, in other words, he was less than human, then one day he became human, and he looked into a, uh, a pool and he saw himself and he said, well, that's a good-looking chap in there. <laughs> 
And, uh, and so he thought, well, maybe there's more than me around here, you know. And then he saw there were other human beings that appeared around him and uh, so they, he kind of elevated human beings. They must be fairly good. And, uh, and then as time progressed, uh, they you know, would elevate, uh, worship a number of human beings and then maybe one appeared greater than the other and uh, he would become a kind of a god. And then they extended that to the heavens and said, well, there must be a lot of gods up there. So they worshipped many gods and then finally the great apex and pinnacle of this whole process was there was one god. So they say. And hence, monotheism was born. But of course, we know that the truth is the precise reverse. Man began worshipping one God. Monotheism was the beginning of everything. And as, as decline took place in the sinfulness of, of the human race, it went down to polytheism, uh, spiritism, and, and so on, and what we have today. Let's have a look at this. This is from, uh, uh, from an article in Creation magazine. The article is called The Original Unknown God of China by Ethel Nelson. And uh, she, she makes the point about of the pictograms or the characters used in the Chinese language, how they are illustrative of a knowledge of the beginning of everything. And uh, if, you, if you date the Chinese culture, it goes right back virtually to the flood. It, very shortly after the flood, uh, the Chinese culture developed. And of course, it is regarded today as the oldest continuous culture uh, in the world. And uh, let's have a look at these, um, these pictograms. I don't know that you can see them very well there, but I'll tell you what they, what they mean. Um, now, of course, the, the Chinese uh, language has changed over time. The characters have changed. And uh, there was a more modern version. And now, of course, we have the version that uh, Mao Zedong um, introduced, the simplified Chinese character, characters. Well, we're going to look at the most primitive ones here. The first one there, you have the, uh, the character for a woman, next to that for trees. This in Chinese means desire or covet. You will notice that the woman between the trees is kneeling. She's facing one tree with her back to another tree. She is facing the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and her back is to the tree of life. This was desire. This was covetousness to the, to the early Chinese. The second is uh, we have the illustration of a serpent plus trees. This means negative. No. Uh, the serpent lied. The next one. The, uh, the character for mouth plus a tree. It means restraint. Don't eat. Restrain yourself. Of course, she saw the fruit. She saw it was good. And she took and she ate. She did not restrain herself. The next one, you have the uh, character for a hand. Sorry, next one is a, a tree. Then an enclosure, a garden, just the square, is the garden. An enclosure with a tree, meaning difficulty or trouble. There's a tree in the garden, and it means a problem. The next one is a hand and a lance, or a spear. That means me. I hold the lance, uh, I hold the spear. Plus a sheep, 
and it means righteousness. I take the lance, I slay the lamb. That is righteousness in the Chinese mind. And the last one is a noble person plus a lamb and it means beautiful. A noble person plus a lamb is beautiful. Now, if you were to ask a, a Chinese person today, what does it mean? They wouldn't know. They'd just write them. <laughs> the meaning has long gone, but it was there. It was there at the beginning. Uh, if you're interested, the, um, the first, that article is in, uh, in Creation magazine. You can just, you can just put in the, the original unknown god of China and, and you can find that, that entire article. Uh, there's also a book that she wrote, God's Promises to the Chinese by Ethel Nelson and Richard uh, Broadberry. Uh, it, it talks about the, um, a lot about Chinese culture and about the, uh, the border sacrifice that they used to uh, do every year. The emperor every year would make a sacrifice at this particular place in China uh, for the sin of the, of the, of the, of the nation. And uh, this, this apparently persisted for, for millennia. It did not stop until uh, the 20th century. 1903-1911 or something like that, just the beginning of the 1900s when it stopped. Some of you mentioned to me um, uh, John Mackay. John Mackay was uh, uh, one of the creation ministry uh, founders and uh, he and some others a long time ago went up to North Queensland and uh, they were in Aboriginal community and uh, they, they, they were talking to this elder of the community. Now, th now we're probably thinking of probably the 60s at least and uh, they asked this elder, they said, can you tell us what God is like? And uh, he said, well, I, um, I'll go and speak to the other elders. So he went away to speak to the other elders of the tribe. Then he came back and he said, we don't know, we have forgotten. In other words, the one true and living God is there but he is now in the mists of history and of course Aboriginal people as, as most animist people are more concerned with the spirits that surround them and trouble them than they are with who God is uh, that is their daily, their daily uh, activity to deal with, with these more immediate problems of, uh, of spirits and, uh, and so on which is characteristic of animistic society well, three steps uh, we find from, uh, from this point on. This is number one. Man exchanged the glory of God for images. This is Paul telling us what has happened to the race, what has happened to mankind. This is the first thing he did. Although he knew God at the beginning, the knowledge of God was there. He did not honour him as God nor give thanks. Now that's a terrible indictment. Didn't honour God, didn't give thanks. It's, it's first cab off the rank. There's a problem here. He doesn't acknowledge God and he won't thank him anymore. They became futile in their thinking. Their foolish heart was darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools. So they refused God's worship and gratitude and were not thankful any longer. Therefore, they became futile in the way they thought. They became fools, it says, and what did they do? They exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images. So we have the introduction of idolatry. The glory of God. They took it away from that and clothed their images 
with what was rightly God's. And they made these images of, of mortal man, birds, animals and reptiles. You note the decline. First of all, they worshipped the likeness of a man. Then birds. Then creeping animals. Then things that creep upon the ground, like serpents. Well, there's a downward projection. Therefore, God did a, a judicial act. What did he do? God gave them over. He gave them over or gave them up, in this case to immorality, the degrading of their bodies among themselves. This of course is what happened in Exodus when, the, um, when they made the golden calf. They, um, they sat down to eat and they rose up to play. This always accompanies idolatry, this adopted lifestyle. When you see that, you know something has happened before that. You know man has done something in respect of the glory of the immortal God because he wouldn't do that otherwise. And you find this is not so much a sin, it is a sin, but it's much more a judgment to be, to be allowed to go into this lifestyle, to be given over to this lifestyle. It is a judicial act of God now. Not simply for a future judgment, but God is judging men now. So that was the, the first judicial act. The second, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. So first of all, they deal with the glory of God, now the truth of God. And they exchange that for untruth, for a lie. Therefore, uh, God, uh, and they refuse to worship and serve, the, they, they rather worship and serve created things rather than the creator who is blessed forever. So what is the lie they accepted? Well, if you go back to the Garden of Eden, the serpent said, you shall not surely die, you shall be as God. So the judgment that was promised, that will never happen. In fact, you'll be as God yourself. Man accepted that lie, exchanging God's truth for that. Now, uh, in, Thessal in 2 Thessalonians, Paul said, they perish because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. For this reason, God sends them a powerful delusion. You see, when men, when men go in a certain direction, they get pushed even further in that direction. God permits it. God allows it. I remember hearing Philip Adams. You know Philip Adams? Australia's number one card-carrying atheist, I would think. Philip Adams on the ABC. And uh, he was interviewing Barbara Thiering. I don't know if any of you heard of Barbara Thiering. She wrote a book uh, now, it's, oh, probably 20 years ago, Jesus the Man. A terrible piece of literature. And uh, she, was, she was become very popular. You know, it was one of these books that come out of Easter. You know, to say the whole of Christianity is now being turned on its head because of this new research. And this Barbara Thiering was an, a, a, theo, a theologian from Sydney. And she wrote this book, and they were all in the book, book, bookshops all around the country. And uh, so Philip Adams interviews her, and here's um, her theory, which was uh, along the lines of uh, uh, the Bible was written on two levels. There's the surface level, uh, which we all understand, but then there's a secret level underneath. And if you're smart enough and wise enough, you can actually read the, the secret message of the Bible, um, which, of course, involved uh, Jesus um, uh, just being a man, uh, and um, it just denies all, all biblical truth that we hold. Well, Philip Adams is listening to this fantastic story from this woman on this interview, and he's saying, yes, 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 yes. Now, Philip Adams is a smart guy, he's very intelligent, 
And I thought to myself, because this woman is denying the veracity of Scripture, he's agreeing. But in, in the agreeing, he's accepting a ridiculous notion that she is putting forward uh, in, with uh, this interpretation. Well, that's what happens. Then we have God's second judicial act. God gave them over to, quote, shameful lusts or degrading passions. Now, we know what this is, but we're so tired of hearing it, so I won't use the word, <laughs> because we get bombarded with it all the time. This is now the acceptable legal reality in society. But God says, no, it's not that. It's my judgment upon you. When a society goes into this lifestyle, not only the doing of it, but the applauding of it, the celebrating of it, this actually is judgment. Judgment upon men uh, for, uh, for this thing. You know, it's, um, and of course, those who do involve themselves leave a mark on their personality, which, which he talks about here. A recompense, a due penalty that will never leave them. Never leave them. I heard a guy uh, who was uh, from America who came out of that, uh, that lifestyle and uh, God had done a wonderful work in his life but he still had that speech almost impediment that you hear from, from these men. And he said, this is just like the scars of my old life. God has not taken it away. It's almost like a reminder of what I have been. And uh, sometimes this is what happens. The scar remains because it is a due penalty and a recompense. So number three, Finally, they rejected the knowledge of God altogether. And, uh, and, and this is, um, we see this of course ar around us. They did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God. Uh, we see that in the public square, in our culture, in all our great institutions, the mention of God is being removed. It's being expunged from the record. We don't want to know any more. We don't even want the name of God to be mentioned in this culture. You know this current debate about the Ramsey Centre that wants to finance a, a chair of study for Western civilization, And uh, every university, you know, it's money. Money is on the table. But the, the universities don't want it. And of course all the activists don't want it. Why? Well, if you're going to study Western civilization, you can't avoid Christianity. You can't avoid the, the, the Christian effect on Western civilization. You can't deny what we have is a product of, uh, of money in the bank. I, I like to call it money in the bank. We live here because of money in the bank in, in reasonable circumstances. If we had not had a Christian past, it would, would not be so good in this country. But the, the bank account is dropping. We are spending it very quickly and it's going away. Well, what did God do about this? We have, oh, I, I might also mention um, You've heard of Valérie Gustin de Stang, the uh, former president of uh, France. He was the main author of the Treaty of Europe, 2004. This, this was the new you know, Magna Carta of, of Europe, if you like. The Treaty of Europe. Everything that it was about, uh, its history, its future, was in this document. And, and Europe was now going to operate by the Treaty of Europe. The one thing missing was the Christian past. In this massive document, they managed not to mention once Christian history of Europe. So intent are they in getting rid of that. In, uh, in America there is a great uh, a cross in Maryland 
which was built after the First World War as a memorial to the dead soldiers, the soldiers who gave their lives in that war. And uh, this is a massive cross. And uh, the, the American Humanist Association has, has gone to the uh, Supreme Court to fight the American Legion to get rid of that cross, simply because it's a cross. Now, if they win, every military cemetery in America will be targeted because every military cemetery has crosses. Unless you're a Jew or something else, there'll be a cross on your headstone. Both Arlington National Cemetery, cemeteries in Belgium, cemeteries in France, everywhere there is an American a military cemetery, it's going to be targeted. It's, uh, it's ridiculous, of course. God's judicial act now. Because of this, God gave them over to a depraved or reprobate mind because they reprobated or cast off in disapproval, the knowledge of God. So God says, if you're going to reprobate the knowledge of God, I'm going to reprobate you to this depraved way of thinking. To live lives, think thoughts, be such creatures as not befitting the universe of the blessed God and most particularly not befitting man who was created in the image of God. Man has become anti-God, anti-truth, anti-life, anti-human in every respect, and more so. Abortion, euthanasia, transgenderism, all of these things. It is just anti, anti-everything. Then it goes on to, to mention nine manifestations of sin. Each of them are, are worthwhile study. And then finally, uh, the crowning conspiracy of evil men. Though they know God's righteous decree that those who, who practice such things deserve to die, they not only do them, it's there, they not only do them, but they give approval to those who practice them. They celebrate it. Yeah. They may not do these things themselves, but the culture now must celebrate. Someone had a saying about if you, um, that which once was uh, regarded as evil, uh, now you must agree with. Now what we agree with, we must now celebrate. And those who once, who do not celebrate it, then they must be dealt with in a bad way, you know, because they're not celebrating. This is the problem. Well, we'll leave it at that. Lord bless you, and we'll come back later. Praise Thanks. The Lord. Yes.